With Peter's question about the benefits of following Jesus being answered, Jesus and the disciples must decide whether or not to go holiday in Jerusalem. Jesus' brothers encourage it for seemingly selfish reasons. Though it's not like Jesus wouldn't normally go, he's a Torah-observant Jew, and the Feast of Booze required that all religious Jews go to Jerusalem. Welcome to Anakinosis, where we renew our minds towards biblical worldview and the scriptures. This is a show for anyone looking to build or repair their biblical worldview. Whether you're 100% comfortable in the current Christian culture, or you feel like an outsider looking in, everyone is welcome. My name is Jeremy Agin. I'm just a guy with a Bible literacy background who has ASD and who thinks a lot about how to think. Today, Jesus will be hard Does the Torah really mention pilgrimage to Jerusalem? No, but it was the fair interpretation because God asked for temple appearances on the three festivals, and the temple was only in one city. Thus, pilgrimage. The three pilgrimages being Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths. This was a time of offerings and sacrifices as well as building tents or booths to remember their history of trusting, not in walls, but in their God in the wilderness. If you remember, Peter had this next holiday on his mind when he offered to build Moses and Elijah tents. The booth motif is a strong one in John's gospel, his official authorized narrative. He started his story by saying that the word came to tent with us. Now, we haven't been in John's story for a long time, but today we return to John 7 for this next event in Jesus' life. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus had been avoiding Judea, where Jerusalem sits, because of the plot to kill him being afoot. Then, John 7, 2-5. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world for not even his brothers believed in him. So Jesus' brothers don't believe in him. They don't believe his words of the kingdom. They don't believe in him being the son of man. And, you know, I can understand that perspective. Born of at least one of the same parents, how could Jesus be any different than them? They do know he's able to perform miracles. They can't deny that but they wish that he would do more public miracles than private. Who knows? Maybe they want to be famous, like tertiary famous. Or maybe they want Jesus to be arrested and done away with. It would be hard to be Jesus' brother. And you might expect Jesus to say, we're on our way, since we know he'll be obedient to the festival. But he surprises here. Starting in verse 6, Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, 
but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it and its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. There is a lot here. First, he says, my time has not yet come. In wisdom literature, God says that timing is essential. He would not feel rushed or feel pressure outside of God's plan. Then he says, your time is always here, which seems like it's a slight jab about them thinking that they can dictate Jesus's journey. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. Has he? In all of his stories so far, the word evil has never appeared. In what way does Jesus think he's testifying that the world's works are evil? Well, he has made it clear that our works are worthless. They are the stuff of selfishness, mixed motives, glory, pleasure, power, etc. And he's been clear that none of them are the way of God. If the way of God is holy, then our way is evil, even if he hasn't used the word. Now, why would anyone hate him over this? Like the rich young ruler, we would love for the answer to our salvation to be something we can do. A box we can check. Something other than faith. And so, sometimes we hate that Jesus is the only way. In the wisdom literature, it's considered foolish to hate someone for telling you the truth. Yet, here we are. Then he tells them all, go ahead, I'm going to stay back. And that would have been shocking. Remaining back in Galilee probably brought Jesus great peace and quiet, a time to check in with God the Father Yahweh and to check the timing of events. Jesus knows that wicked men have their hearts set against him, but is it really already time? He also has a mission to obey the law of God perfectly like nobody else can. So he eventually goes privately, as in not with his family or in large crowds. There's drama ahead. John 7, 11 to 13. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. It's all mutters. But the people do expect him to be there, and then they're split on whether he's good or bad. But they're being quiet about it. The, the plot against the Lord is a growing suspicion. And they would fear being on the wrong side of the whip. And then Jesus steps forward into the light. Verses 14 to 24. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. 
If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on a Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. It appears that we have missed something. John writes Jesus' words referring to a Sabbath healing miracle that these crowds would have just witnessed, but John didn't tell us that tale. Now, we have read tales like it before and we know how it would go, but he's teaching now and the people can't fathom the depths. It's an echo of when he was 12 and left behind at the temple. He explains that the source of his knowledge is the highest authority. It's not some human rabbi. It's not Hillel or Shammai, but Yahweh Almighty. He says you can tell because of his tenor, the lack of stage seeking, the lack of attention drawing. And then he brings up the issue of the law and how they are all lawbreakers, which is true. But then he asks the big question, why do you seek to kill me? Now, yes, there is an actual plot against the Lord, but let's remove that context for one second and look at how Jesus framed it. Bring his context in. They are lawbreakers. Why do they seek to kill him, the law keeper? This has whoever has no sin cast the first stone type energy. And this puts the crowd on their heels. No, no, Jesus, we don't want to kill you. Why would you think that? Are you possessed or something? Nobody here is trying to kill you. And this is where we have to play catch up because Jesus then mentions a miracle he did on the Sabbath to heal a man and says that judging that as wrong is a misstep. For the record, Hillel would be cool with it and Shammai would not. Verses 25 to 27. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Now the plot against the Lord has become open knowledge. People are shocked that he is even freely speaking in the city. Where are the guards? Have they changed their mind? Do they suspect he's really the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ? No, that can't be. This guy's from Nazareth. And I don't think we would know where the anointed one is from. Now that's kind of some magical thinking right there because the scriptures do tell where the anointed one would be from. Born in Bethlehem, coming out of Egypt, a light unto Galilee. Anyway, Jesus seems to notice this moment of freedom as well. John 7, 28-31 So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. 
but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? In Judges and Hosea, when Israel obeyed God, it was said that they knew him. And when they disobeyed God, they did not know him. And Jesus seems to be riffing off this idea. But here he doesn't say Yahweh or God or Father. He just says him. He has sent me. By the end of him explaining that he is being sent from someone else and they don't know that person very well, the guards do come or the mobs go full martial law and an arrest is sought. But there's that whole pesky timing thing and the sovereignty of Yahweh and it just wasn't the right time to catch Jesus. And I don't know how this works or how they can't physically get him. Maybe he just pulled you know, that whole stand on the other side of a moving caravan and then vanish. My wife, Lori, thinks that it was really subtle, that it had to be so subtle that it was quickly forgotten. I picture something less subtle, like the crowd being parted, like the Red Sea as Jesus walks out. Either way, Jesus cannot be captured or killed if he isn't willing, because he is actually in charge. Most importantly, many people come to believe in him that day. They ask themselves, would the Messiah really be more obvious than this? From the Pharisees' point of view, this couldn't have gone worse. Jesus spoke freely and people believed him. They are losing their grip. It's time to send the armed police. Yeah, police. The Pharisees were powerful among the people in their influence because they weren't elite, they weren't rich, and they proclaimed that they were bringing God's law to the people. Now, they did hold a small portion of actual power in the Sanhedrin, which was made up of mostly out-of-touch Sadducees. The Pharisees had influence with the chief priests, and they held enough seats in the Sanhedrin to be able to issue an arrest warrant that the temple police would have to follow through on. And these men are likely innocent Levites. John 7, 32-36 The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me where I am you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am you cannot come? This is actually really funny dialogue right before escaping capture again. It's almost like a taunt, but it also makes them wonder where is this guy going? How far away does he think he can get? Their speculation is that he'll just go into Europe, Turkey, the north, maybe the east, among the dispersed Jewish people. But how about another dimension? 
Outside of our three dimensions is the heavenly realm where God dwells, which is also here. So he's also here. The space overlaps and someday the veil will be torn and there'll be a grand merge. They call it heaven. This is the place Jesus is likely referring to that he is going that they cannot go. And it wasn't until religious art in Europe in the Middle Ages did we get the idea of fluffy clouds for God's heaven. And where did they get the idea? Well, the Greek gods were often depicted in the clouds, and there were Bible verses that mentioned the clouds of heaven. They just completely ignored the context of that being a reference to the sky. Just like our picture of hell got out of whack, so has heaven. Anyway, this is where Jesus is going that no one can follow. And remember, only one person can enter the kingdom, the perfect one. If anyone else is getting in, or if anyone else is going to enjoy the merger, or bring that heaven here, they'll need to be one with him. Well, the police missed And on the final day of the festival, Jesus makes a very public comment that echoes throughout the centuries. Verses 37 to 44. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is pretty cool. During the Feast of Booths, a priest publicly takes water from the Pool of Siloam and brings that water into the temple as a symbol that the coming Messiah will bring living water in his kingdom. The promise of living water is found in Zechariah and in Ezekiel. And the practical bowls for the ceremony are actually mentioned in Zechariah as well. This ceremony starts after the first lighting ceremony on day two. But this event in the life of Christ lands on the final day of the celebration. All of these people celebrate a future Messiah while he stands right there. And he clearly says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Now, the prophet Ezekiel, who had inspired some of the imagery here with the vision of flowing waters from the temple into the Dead Sea, had also foreseen a future day when the Spirit of God would be poured out on mankind. The prophet Joel as well. So, when Jesus says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, John The narrator says, he said this about the Spirit. Who is the Spirit? Pneuma is the Greek word. Ruach is the Hebrew word. Present at creation, hovering over the waters, personified as Lady Wisdom in the wisdom literature. Wait, a lady? Are you ready for some fun with pronouns? Ruach is a feminine word. Pneuma is neuter. So the genification doesn't translate over. Over 75 times, ruach is feminine in the Old Testament, all in context about the Spirit of God. And this doesn't mean the Spirit is a girl. 
sin is also a feminine word, and sin isn't a girl either. But sin's also not a person, and the spirit is. So word choice does matter for people. There were many things about the spirit of God that were feminine. In the first century Jewish mind, there is a Holy Spirit of God who is feminine, a great teacher of wisdom, and carries the power of God. This continued to be the case in the early church. Origen actually called the Holy Spirit Mother. Irenaeus and Epaphrahat used the pronoun she. The Syriac language carried the feminine spirit into the churches in their writings all the way to the 3rd century. As the church became Catholic and Jerome translated the Greek to Latin, the pronoun he was inserted and the masculine word spiritus. And this was handed down to Wycliffe and King James, who had it in their English translations, and so on and so forth. Remove and swap out some of these things. It really shouldn't be any shock that a religion that spent centuries sidelining women would do the same thing with the feminine part of the spirit. In some Christian circles, you'll hear the spirit referred to as male. In some, you will hear the spirit referred to as an it. I was raised in such a practice. But Jesus and the first century audience speaking Hebrew and Aramaic were using feminine words. Now, we don't need to go crazy. Yahweh God the Father is expressly male, but not physically so. He is a spirit and not body. And his spirit, the Holy Spirit, is feminine. Out of the Trinity characters, only Jesus is physically male. When God created humans in his image, he made both physical sexes, and he didn't stick to one cloned gender of himself. I mean, where did women come from? So, who is the Spirit? One with Yahweh, Lady Wisdom, giver of life, giver of gifts, nurturer of heaven. If you haven't heard this before, it might not sit well. So, let it sit, circle back in a few days and examine it. What gender is the Hebrew word Shekinah for God's presence? Feminine. Even on the website Got Questions, where they are trying to explain that the Holy Spirit is always a dude, they write this. God is said to give birth in the book of Job and portrays himself as a mother in Isaiah. Jesus describes the father as being like a woman in search of a lost coin in Luke 15. He describes himself as a mother hen in Matthew 23. In Genesis 1, 26-27, God said, Let us make humankind in our image after our likeness. And then God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Thus, the image of God was male and female, not simply one or the other. That's in an article defending the Holy Spirit being only a guy. The toughest place to see feminine is in John 14, which we haven't got to yet, but they translate into English Jesus as saying this, Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, So many people will say, hey, Jesus said him, game over. And honestly, that is a good way to look at it. 
we just should look at Jesus's language, not English. In Hebrew and Aramaic, spirit is female and would have female indicators. John wrote it in Greek, where pneuma is neuter, and the word translated as he in English is the Greek word autos, which can mean he, she, or it, depending on the word it's connected to. Every time you see he in that passage, it's autos. And so it is the translators that are deciding between he, she, and it and picking he. In verse 15, when it says he will dwell with you, it's actually the Greek word estai from emi, which is simply I am. He will dwell with you comes from I am. So sometimes they're a little loose in their English translations. Later in verse 26, where it says, he will testify of me. The he is the word ekinos, which means that one. He is that one. It's neutral. So Jesus didn't actually say he or him, but neither did John record him as saying she or her. The Greek, the Koine Greek, just leaves that out. So we could read it as this. Even the pneuma of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees them or knows them. Now, is the spirit ever masculine? Yes, Jesus describes the spirit as a helper using the masculine word paraclete. But let's be real. You can use whatever pronoun you want to use with the spirit because the spirit isn't physical. However, you can use she and not be wrong either. They or there might be the middle choice. There is a part of God that is the fountainhead of all that is amazing about men and the fountainhead of all that is amazing about women. Yahweh is not married to Shekinah. They are different persons of the same being. In three-dimensional land, we can only be one person in one being. But in multi-dimensional space, it could be true that more than one person can be one being. A multi-dimensional being in a multi-dimensional space. Anyway, Jesus says that living water will flow out. And John has interpreted that as the Holy Spirit that will be given to those who believe. Something for us to look for in our study. John 7, 40-44 When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. And others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid their hands on him. So Jesus is slinging out some next level knowledge. And the people wonder, is he a prophet? Is he the Messiah? Again, this is out of control from the Pharisees' point of view. Whether people believe or not, based off of his pedigree, 
He needs to be grabbed. He needs to be arrested. But they just can't. Not even the police. And they have some explaining to do. Verses 45 to 52. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So, to be clear, the Pharisees do not believe Jesus because they don't want to believe Jesus and they don't like what this kingdom is about. They would like to keep the status quo. It's a position of power. But they're using a convenient apologetic of saying that he's from the wrong town to justify their position. Nicodemus, who has heard from Jesus' own lips that God loved the world so much that he would send his only son that if anyone believes in him, they would not die but come to life. But Jesus had even pressed Nicodemus to be born again, to not trust his bloodline to reach the kingdom or to be justified that he needed something new. What we don't know is where Nicodemus' heart is here, but at least he's protective of Jesus. Can we kill anyone without a trial? No, we can't. As we continue to build our biblical worldview, we want to think about what in our minds needs renewed. Jesus is in control. He cannot be caught. And this can encourage us as we go through tough times. Jesus hasn't lost control of our time. He is here. And the Spirit is too. And the Spirit is compassionate and wants to guide us to be faithful children of God. And we can listen to their wisdom. There are opportunities every day. First thing is first for us. Belief in Jesus. This is something he continues to stress. Believe in him. Trust in him. Put all your eggs in his basket. Thank you for listening. Anakinosis is a project for anyone, anywhere who's looking to renew their biblical worldview. Next time, Jesus will rescue a woman caught in adultery. Or will he?